one of the elders, and it just, it stuck with me, it's still with me. He said, the person that's a Kalia is the person that makes the decision to be Kalia. So when I go and sing and dance, or I teach about our culture, or I go gather plants with my daughters, whatever, it's not like extra that I've added to my life. No, no, this is this is my life. Art is my life. Teaching is my life. The ranching too, you know. And actually the ranching and the art complement what I do as an academic. And the ac academia kind of, you know, complements what I do in the ranching and the, in the art. Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Past Forward present Engaging the World leading the conversation on ethnic studies. In this series, we explore ethnicity through race, religion, indigeneity, and cultural identity, examining how the stories of these communities are told and their histories are taught, if at all. Through art, education, scholarship, and activism, our guests fight to have their voices heard, their heritage celebrated, and their contributions to the fabric of American society recognized. In this episode, we connect with visual artist Gerald Clark, professor of ethnic studies at UC Riverside and former member of the Tribal Council of the Cahuilla Band of Indians. Here is Gerald Clark. I'd love for you to share a little bit of your understanding of the Cahuilla history. You live on the reservation and about what is the size of the reservation today? So the reservation is uh, about 20,000 acres. And uh, my family uh, controls about uh, 400 to 600 acres of it. We, we run our, that's where we have our family cattle ranch. But the, um, the reservation was established in 1875 by executive order. And here's another part of the history a lot of people don't know, but the federal government negotiated a series of treaties with tribes here in California, and they set aside uh, over 7 million acres of land for um, Indian reservations here in California. And th th those were, were signed and they were sent back to Washington DC to be ratified by the Senate. And the California contingency um, were against it because of the gold rush. They feared that they'd be giving, you know, perfectly good gold <laughs> land right to the indians who would just waste it right that was their attitude and you know dollar signs right often part of this story and so within while those treaties were in the senate they were actually quote unquote lost misplaced and they stayed that way for 50 years and so the the reservations and rancherias that are established in california today were all done by executive order and there it's a small fraction of those millions of acres that would have been uh, created right through the ratification of those treaties. And by the time they were found again in some crypt, right, some file cabinet in the U.S. Senate, uh, the Senate had passed a law uh, that, or Congress uh, passed a law that said no more, no more treaties with tribes. So before that, do you have like an estimate of, of how much land the Cahuilla uh, tribe recognized? Yeah, we do have a, a, a cultural uses map. And, and you know, you got to understand the, the, the borders, right? Unless it's a, a wall, right? Borders ebbed, ebbed and flowed with the generations. And so Cahuilla territory went from a present day where I'm at right now, Riverside, California, maybe even as far west as Corona. 
and it went all the way back through Riverside County, northern San Diego County, southern San Bernardino County, and was around the Salton Sea uh, and going, you know, out towards um, the, the the Colorado River. And so, you know, there are s- several different bands of the Kuya uh, people today. Some of those are up in the mountains, and that's where my my band is. Some are down in the Coachella Valley. And um, if you're familiar with the Morongo band of uh, Kuya Indians, they're there in the, the pass area uh, just uh, east of Banning. But those were all like, you know, those are all portions of our traditional uh, uh, cultural use area. But, you know, I used to teach in Oklahoma and some of my students there, they were Seminoles. So they were from Florida. Their people were from Florida who were sent, you know, eastward, just like the Cherokee for the, uh, the Trail of Tears the five civilized tribes were sent to Oklahoma. So, you know, those people, they're thousands of miles away from their traditional homeland. So even though the Kauia, we have a small, small portion of, of land that we originally held, at least we are still in our traditional homeland. So I feel very blessed. And, and as a professor at UCR, I, I, I feel very blessed that I can be a, a you know, Kauia Indian man and I can teach, you know, what I teach in our traditional homelands. I, I'm coming from a place of ignorance, and I, I, I admit this, it's disappointing to admit this, but out of the 110 federally recognized tribes in California, I think I could probably name five. Mm-hmm. Three of those I just learned in the last five years, and that's a shame. I have born and raised in, in California, grew up in Northern California, spent most of my life down here, and that's a shame. I think it's a fault in our educational system, and I think it exists nationally, that that this rich history of our Native people is relegated to a week's conversation, if that, a page in a history book, if that, and until that changes, I don't think that we're going to, it's going, we're, we're on an uphill battle, and I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think one of the ma- major changes that needs to happen is that America, mainstream America, you know, uh, needs to s- understand that Native American history in in this country is American history. You know, oftentimes when you take an American history class, it starts with the revolution, right, or the colonists or what have you. And indeed, I was asked uh, here at UCR, I was asked to teach a class uh, uh, called California Indian History. And the, the, the description of the class, it was probably written in the 70s, was the rich history and heritage of California Indians from Spanish contact to the 20th century. And I run that by my students, and they all think it's perfect. And I'm like, no. I said, Native people have been here for thousands of years before the Europeans stumbled into the Western Hemisphere, and we're still here in the 21st century, right? And so classes like that, and, and the teachers that you had, the teachers that I've had, they they had the same, you know, lackluster education that we were given as well, right? And it's this idea that, uh, you know, like a class like that, it was really about European impact on California Indians. It wasn't about California Indian cultures. And until we, we realized that you know, uh, the history of the indigenous people of the lands that we now call California, that's California history. That's American history. And we need to to teach it that way. We need to value it that way. And then maybe it becomes part of, you know, the, the 
the dialogue of 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 the classroom when we're when we're discussing the history of of these lands when i'm wondering how much of that history has already been lost a lot of these languages are dying languages so as those these native languages disappear from our 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 tongues and our, our mouths and our ears that history disappears as well yeah and, and you know you know had the gold rush happened here in southern california i wouldn't even be here my people wouldn't be here that, that was devastating you know um but that being said you know um the story of native people in in you know this hemisphere the story of my people is a story of resilience and it's it's a story i think it's you know we teach that when we think about the pioneers coming across to you know the westward expansion and pull yourself up by your bootstrap and all, all those kinds of things but we don't do that when we do native culture and it, it's certainly challenging and i will say like i've learned some things about my my people's own history from non-native people and um i don't i don't apologize for that i don't i don't think that's a weakness because thank god someone took interest enough to document this stuff because we were you know we've been in survival mode for a couple centuries now and so i think i think the, a lot of the knowledge maybe not all of it but i think a lot of the knowledge in the stories um whether they be in the form of you know a written history or documented through art right and images uh or through song and through story and you know like um many times you know native uh, uh creation stories uh, those are our belief system you know and you go to a, a bookstore and you'll find you know the bible you'll find the quran then you'll find books called the myths and legends of the american indian and i was like oh, okay so ours our stories are myths and legends and your stories are the <laughs> you see so we've got to, we, you know, I think it's out there, but we have to change our attitude towards those things. Uh, creation stories, they, they're the blueprint of how a, a community can survive and live within a specific environment. It, but instead, we, we, we turn them into fairy tales and they're not taken seriously. And so this is what I do in my classes. I try to open students' eyes to the, the fact that there's some real important and what i call indigenous the the indigenous intellectual tradition which is often stereotyped as being um you know superstitious or quaint uh fairy tale like right um humorous right but there's some real knowledge there and and i think what's important about what i do as an educator is there's some answers in indigenous intellectual traditions that could solve some of the most important issues that globally we face as a species if people would just bother looking and taking it seriously in 2003 you came back to take over your your family's ranch uh you said 400 acres about that yeah roughly what was the the pressure or was there any pressure to return or was it already understood that that this is what you were going to do and and, and where were you before that you were in Oklahoma yeah. at that point? Yeah, I was teaching at a regional university in Oklahoma, and both my daughters were born in Oklahoma. 
And yeah, uh, you know, it was just understood. My dad was the only son. Uh, uh, he had three sisters and then I was the only son and it was just kind of assumed. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to paint it as though, you know, that typical story of, you know, pressure on the, you know, the kids to do this or do that. It was, I was happy to do it. And I just always understood that that was, that was the way it was going to be, you know? Well, it was, was part of that returning to your land. I mean, not just your family's land, but your people's land as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but I will say, you know, like when my dad was alive, it was it was actually, and I don't want to speak for my sister, but I think she has similar thoughts. Um, you know, he was an alcoholic, and, and um, so was his dad, and I have that potential in me as well, right? And so it was hard for us to live here with him like that. And um, you know, I don't want your listeners to think, you know, oh, this typical story of alcoholism in tribal communities without also considering the intergenerational trauma that was inflicted on our people. You know, my my grandparents met in federal Indian boarding school. They were raised more by, the, uh, you know, these, uh, in some cases, sadistic teachers. Uh, and, and they were raised more by them than they were their own parents. You know, and as a, as a parent myself, uh, I just can't even, I can't even fathom the tragedy of not, of being told I was incompetent and incapable of raising my own kids. And so th- those traumas continue on to this day, but that's, that's a, a real solid reason why I, I didn't live here at that time. So now we got to talk about time management. You came back, you're taking care of a lot of property and a pretty good amount of cattle. You're also a professor of ethnic studies at at uc riverside as you mentioned and you're also a full-time artist so what does time management look like (laughs) yeah thanks for bringing that up because yeah i i've got a lot of irons in the fire sometimes literally right right, yeah (laughs) and uh so you know i'm teaching today i teach all day today and then uh you know i'll be probably be in the studio this evening you know working i've got a, a big work i'm working on uh, and then I just talked to my brother-in-law a little while ago and the cows got out while I was in class <laughs> and we pushed down the fence. And so we're going to be fencing some this weekend. And then there's also uh, tomorrow's California Indian Day. Uh, uh, September 23rd is California Indian Day here in California. So I'm going to be singing and dancing over at a celebration at Cal State uh, San Bernardino Friday. And then there is a cultural gathering at the Morongo Reservation all weekend. I'll probably be singing and dancing there on Sunday. But, you know, uh, there was a documentary that a filmmaker made about my return to the reservation way back in like 2005, I think is when it came out. And um, it wasn't just me, but he also interviewed the filmmaker, interviewed a couple elders. And one of the elders, and it just it stuck with me and still with me. He said, the person that's a Kalia is the person that makes the decision to be Kalia, you know? So when I go and sing and dance or I teach about our culture or I go gather plants with my daughters, whatever, it's not like extra that I've added to my life. No, no, this is this is my life, you know? Mm. And so that's kind of, you know, art is my life. Teaching is my life. And so, yeah, I stay in the ranching too, you know? And actually the ranching and the art complement what I do as an academic, you know, and the ac- academia kind of, you know, complements what I do in the ranching and the, in the art. So it, it all cross pollinates. And, and another elder told me the reason why the creator gave us five digits on our hand is that we shouldn't be working towards one goal 
or mm. be one person at any time. You know, that's the story of mainstream America, right? We, the, the person who dedicated themselves solely to this one endeavor and, have, you know, become a champion or whatever. And that's, again, that's another kind of uh, belief system that's very foreign to me. So, you know, I, I'm talking to you right now as an academic and as a native person, but also as a father and as a rancher, you know, and, and uh, an artist. And, you know, we, Sometimes uh, people say, you know, uh, people like myself live in two worlds. And I'm like, man, I wish that were true. I live in about 15 different worlds, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's not, I'm just code switching left and right and doing what I do, but that's my life. And, and you know, that's how I live it. I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, your artwork. You, know, you have two pieces that were just brought into the uh, Escalette Permanent Collection at Chapman University. Your pieces tend to have a, a statement to them. There is there is messaging in your art, and I'm curious how much of your work is determining that message, and then how much of the work is just doing and making, and then realizing there's something behind it, inspiring it. Oh uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, um, I have something to say, and so like when I was in graduate school, I dabbled with some abstract painting and such. And, um, and I actually enjoy making that, but um, I did not enjoy when people would look at the work and, and interpret it in all these different ways that I never necessarily meant, right? And so I have something to say. And so I, tr I you know, <laughs> I always say I'm less of a poet, more of a documentarian uh, in that, you know, I, I really, you know, I'm pretty straightforward with my messages. I feel like I am. And that doesn't mean I, I'm closed off to ideas because sometimes I'll make something with a specific intent and then I'll hear somebody interpret something because we all have our positionality, right? We bring our experiences to the work and then I'll look at the work and I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I, I see that and I like that. You know, just because I make the work doesn't mean I don't learn from it. That's kind of something that I think people, that's a myth that people don't know or, or they think that, you know, I'm, I'm the creator so I know it all and I certainly don't. I'm open to ideas and suggestions outside of myself because that's what makes it interesting for me but you know um art students they're they're told that you, you have a sketchbook and you should be working in your sketchbook and i don't sketch much at all uh at, my sketchbook is more like lists and so I, I if i have an idea i start making a list and, and it might be a list like okay if i have an idea what kind of materials would best convey that idea then I would do a list. Okay, what colors or textures or shapes would best express those? So I make a bunch of lists and then I kind of connect these words and these concepts. And then that's when I get started with the, you know, and then I might do a sketch of, okay, this is what it might kind of look like. Um, but, you know, it, you know, you, you make a sketch or whatever. And, you know, when I was younger, I always thought, well, when I'm really good as, as an artist, I'll do a sketch and then I'll do the work and it'll look just like it, you know? <laughs> and now I've, I've come to realize that's a complete myth. It, that, that'll never happen. You, it's you know, like the artist like, trying to capture the image in the brain. You will never be able to create yeah. what your mind sees or what your mind well, hears. That's, that's been always been my, my thought on like when you read a book and you love a book and then they make a movie right. out of it. And you never like the movie because because that movie, that filmmaker, no matter what CGI they're using, they can never match the brilliance that you, the, the images, right, that you put onto those words while you were reading that book.
I'd love to talk a little bit about um, the commodification of art and and commodification of quote unquote native art as well. You know, I, I think any artist who is out to make money is already doomed to fail. Like if that is your goal, then you will not succeed. Um, and that's in any art form. But when we're looking at native art or traditional native art, it feels like it's it's to me, uh, it feels like it's beautifully crafted, functional items that tourists buy and hang on their wall. It seems like traditionally and historically that it was not making pieces to to sell. It was making things to use. Am I correct in thinking that? Well, I, th I think you're on the right track. You know, um, uh, many, many Americans today, they have their dishes, right, in, in, up in the cupboard in their kitchens that were purchased. They were mass produced in some factory somewhere in the world, and then they're purchased through some kind of retailer, and, and they're functional. They're completely functional, but it's hard to say that they kind of enhance our, our, our daily lives by interacting with them or what have you. And so... Um, by by making things that you use on daily basis uh that are functional but also um you know add to the aesthetic quality of one's life i think are, is hugely important and i think the native people understood that and um you, you know i went to a conference years ago back in the 90s it was a native art conference and it, the concept or the the theme was we have no word for art mm -hmm. And I understand the concept that they were saying, but I don't think that's necessarily true. We understood aesthetics. We understood when something was very well made and it's pleasing. Uh, I know myself uh, in my studio back when I first got going, I, I had all the cheapest tools and, and they were not a joy to work with. And now that I'm older, I save up my, you know, my pennies or ask for Christmas gift or whatever. And now I got better tools and they're a joy to work with. And it's a similar kind of thing. It, it enhances one's life uh, and the energy it brings to, you know, whatever you happen to be uh, doing. And, you know, sadly, we replace that. Contemporary America has replaced that with mass produced, cheaper, right? Um kind of uh, uh anonymous right you know yeah and, and even like the 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 Kauia people and and tribes here in california we're, we're known for this this like really really high quality basket making and think about basket making you know when when someone uh, finds out you know like i remember when i was an undergraduate someone said oh you're in college what are you majoring i would say art and then they would oh you know and then say what are you taking basket right, weaving basket weaving you know, is like the joke <laughs> yeah it's like this joke right and yet here we have this very very fine art and you think about basket weaving again it's a gendered art so it was done primarily by women but these women they knew um the plants that they were used to create the baskets so they were like botanists right they knew where they grew they knew how they grew, they knew how to perpetuate growth, and they knew how to harvest without harming the plants. So they were like botanists, right? And then when they when they bring those those materials home, they treat those materials and however you know they need to do, whether it's dyeing the color, whether it's splitting it or whatever, and they would combine it. And then what they would do is they would add these designs that referred to our belief system, our cosmology, right? So they were kind of philosophers too. They were scientists and it's, it's truly amazing. And I think the story of this complexity of basket weaving and the joke of basket weaving that shows you how far apart our cultures are.
you know how important is the the uh commodification of these these items whether they're the baskets or or pottery in some places or or woven blankets how important is the sale of those to the community to the tribe well you know the the uh, santa fe indian market which happens i think it's the third weekend of august every year it's one of it's it's the biggest uh indian market here in the united states uh that happens annually and um you know uh, I don't participate in the Indian market. I know a lot of people who do. Uh, I've characterized it as the largest like exportation of our creative endeavors out of the communities, right? Mm. And it's usually non-natives who come and who just, who, you know, who buy these things that that no longer are part of our culture. They've, they've left, right? Uh, now, that being said, and I'm an academic, right? Uh, that being said, uh, as a native artist, we, we can get real idealized and we can say this isn't right and blah 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 right but um as a native artist it's kind of nice to be able to eat and pay your rent right that's the reality right and so it's easy for me to judge you know i i i got this uh you know academic job so i don't have to sell that's kind of why i've taught all these years is because it's freed me from the the uh, commercial market uh uh and you know i be honest with you, I, I haven't had a whole lot of luck over the years selling what I do. Uh, you know, if I'm talking about genocide, you know, nobody wants genocide over hanging over their couch, <laughs> right? right? You know, yeah. so yeah, put this um, in the and, hallway, and, and, <laughs> exactly in the foyer, yeah. right? Uh, but um, you know, so I've had more luck with university galleries, with nonprofit spaces, with museums. Uh, because th that emphasis is not simply on selling it's a it's about it's real about learning it's about cultural interaction if you're okay with this you talked about the importance of song in and art in in maintaining this history and you participate in bird singing which is singing your people's history would you be able to give us a little bit of that well, uh, you know, one example, I don't have my rattle with me here, but one example that people oftentimes are surprised at is we have a series of songs about earthquakes. Mm. And, you know, we think of earthquakes in a scientific, you know, seismic kind of way. Uh, well, of course we have songs about earthquakes. We're California Indians, right? Right. You know, and so, you know, these songs are, uh, they're our history and they tell the story of our early migration and the, the creation, right? And so it makes complete sense that we would have these types of songs. And, you know, these songs uh, help us remember our, the teachings that were handed down, you know, generation from generation. Uh, there's another one uh, talking about the pack rat who's going in and out of uh, their den, right? Carrying uh, supplies or whatever, because they're getting ready for uh, winter, okay? And so why do we sing about the pack rat? Well because that's that's it's a story it's telling us that you've got to be prepared right our creation story unlike maybe the christian creation story our creation story starts with three uh, miscarriages well two miscarriages and then the third one is when finally the creators are born and i think people are kind of surprised to hear about a miscarriage at the beginning of time but i think what that sets forward for the queer people is that life is hard from the very beginning life has been hard creation you know was hard 
and it sets the tone for that's that's what we need to prepare and we need to expect and so this song about the pack rat preparing for winter that's telling uh, ourselves that's telling our youth that you have to be prepared think about the united states when covid hit you know we were so unprepared and you know a lot of the 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 uh, ppe the the face masks were made in other countries we weren't even making them here so you know th there there's that message there's that lesson I'm going to finish here. I, I think this is an interesting question, and especially as I ask it to to different people from different cultures and different backgrounds. But I'd love to know, what does the American dream look like to you? Or what does it make you feel when you hear that term mentioned? Uh, I think it's very narrow. Um, <laughs> you know, that story, the story of America, the great melting pot, the uh, the American dream, all those things. Um, you know, I tell my students we were all catfished in thinking that you know that was for everyone because it certainly isn't. But I also think that there are various um, versions of that of what that ideal is. Um, <laughs> I had uh, my very first class for the quarter today, and my students asked if uh, we were going to have class on Thanksgiving because they assumed that I didn't I didn't celebrate Thanksgiving and I would show up for class or what have you. And you know, I laughed. I told them, you know, I love I love eating a lot and then watching the Cowboys lose. That's like a great thing for for a native person to do, you know. The American dream for me, you know, so much of it's tied to the land. I see mm -hmm. so much abuse to the land, you know, and I'd like to see um you know, again, there are lessons in this indigenous intellectual tradition, um, you know, that um, I'd like to see mainstream America look at seriously, you know, like the, the California wildfires. Um, we have answers for that. And you're starting to see some articles, you know, LA Times, the Huffington Post about, you know, uh, Cal Fire and state uh, officials looking at that history of, of control burns and cultural burns. But it's really just lip service right now because we have no word for nature or the wilderness and and you know this idea of natural resources that's foreign to us as well because the, the world is not just meant to be used right to be extracted from you know and so you know i guess for me the american dream is where we're all on the same page working towards making the world a better place not just extracting from it if you would like to continue the conversation, visit chapman.edu slash Wilkinson to hear all of the lectures from this series. To access recommended books from our guests for further learning and for more socially conscious content, visit us at pastforward.org or follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.